Hi, I'm Jay from San Diego. I'm Chase from Seattle. I'm Jamie from New York City. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. It's easy. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is David Wayne, who directed Wet Hot American Summer. It's a movie that I have watched a ridiculous number of times. I love it. There are thousands of people like me around the world, maybe hundreds of thousands. The critics didn't agree. Like, <laughs> and I just think a lot of the critics that just weren't keying into it just threw their hands in the air. I'm just like, this sucks. I, not only does it suck, I'm hostile to it because <laughs> I'm just like, I don't even know what to say. In fact, years later, we were putting together another project and we had a financier ready to go. And at the last minute in the 11th hour, the guy, the head of the company finally watched Wet Hot American Summer. And he shut down the whole thing because he was like, you guys, I, I was all set to do this. I thought your script was awesome, but you're clearly not funny. And, <laughs> and you, you guys have no idea how to make comedy because I watched Wet Hot American Summer. <laughs> and it's just, you know, okay. <laughs> it's bullseye. This week, David Wayne makes the successful leap from the cultiest of cult comedies to the mainstream multiplex and keeps things super funny. Correspondent Jordan Morris ranks all of the things in America because we made him. And I talk about my jam, DJ Quick's pitch in on a party. The good stuff this week and every week on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Every week we like to get some culture recommendations from some of our favorite culture recommenders. And this week we are joined by some of our favorite, favorite culture recommenders, Nathan Rabin and Keith Phipps of the AV Club, who are joining me now from the AV Club offices in Chicago. Hey, Nathan. Hey, Keith. How are you guys doing? We're doing fantastic. I concur. Keith in particular. So, Nathan, Keith, you usually bring in recommendations for new releases, uh, but this week we have asked you to bring in some classics, some all-time favorites. Nathan, what have you got for us this week? Well, I recommend uh, maybe my favorite comedy album of all time, which is uh, Randy Dangerfield's No Respect. Um, I think growing up, uh, Randy Dangerfield was kind of my uh, preeminent uh, sort of childhood hero. You know, he sort of became this sort of uh, cuddly figure. So it's kind of fascinating to go back and to actually listen to No Respect, which is a very hard R, uh, which is very kind of racy, <laughs> which is, you know, Randy Dangerfield kind of as he actually was, which is kind of sad, desperate, hungry, uh, very alive, uh, very kind of tragicomic uh, human being. I'll tell you last, it was a rough week. My psychiatrist told me I'm going crazy. I said to him, if you don't mind, like a second opinion, he said, all right, you're ugly too. <laughs> he told me to lay in the couch face down. <laughs> you kid, I know I'm ugly. I stuck my head out the window, got arrested for mooning. I was an ugly kid, too. I worked at a pet store. People kept asking how big I'd get. And there's this incredible energy to it where he's absolutely killing me and just every line just slaughters. And it doesn't matter how bad the jokes are. And he was not averse to hacky material. Um, you know, he just sells it. And there's one of my favorite Dangerfield routines on there, which is he talks about, you know, uh, this heaviness that kind of surrounds him. And uh, sometimes he talks to the heaviness, and he goes, oh, hi, heaviness. Sometimes you turn to drugs, the pressure of life reaches you, you know. And my life is nothing but pressure, all pressure. And this pressure is like a heaviness. And it's always on top of me, this heaviness, always there since I'm a kid. Other people wake up in the morning, ah, new day, up and at him. I wake up, the heaviness is waiting for me nice. And sometimes I even talk to it. And I say, hi, heaviness. And the heaviness looks back at me today. You're going to get it good, you know. You'll be drinking early today. And, for, <laughs> and uh, that, just, that just absolutely kills me, you know. And that's just kind of so the perfect kind of embodiment of desperation and depression. And that phrase, oh, you're going to be drinking early tonight. Um, it's funny, but it's also really sad and it also like you know sort of the best of this kind of cuts to the bone where you get the sense that this isn't really shtick like this is kind of who he is on sort of an existential level but it's also hilarious keith what have you got my pick is the 1956 film the burmese heart from japanese director koni chikawa and it's a film dealing with the end of world war ii 
and sort of the end of what it means for a war to end and how it leaves everyone feeling and where people go from there. Um, it was I was th- I started thinking of this film after I saw the movie War Horse, uh, which is another I think a great anti-war film as as is this and concisely it's about a Japanese private who um, is separated from the rest of his troop. And kind of has to fi- starts off finding his way back and disguises himself as a Buddhist monk, and over the course of wandering around Burma, kind of finds that the disguise he's taking on kind of seeps into his soul. And looking at all the corpses of the unburied dead, realizes that he should. It's his responsibility to do something to make this situation better. 1956 was. Um, I mean, it was still a very transitional time. For Japan, it was still a time when they were trying to figure out what post-war Japan was going to be. Yeah, absolutely. And there's there's a lot of sort of um, you know sort of a reckoning of of what what they've done. I mean, I think there was certainly a sense that uh, in the war that just happened that the Japanese uh, nation was not innocent in in what had just happened, Uh, and the rest of the world didn't see it that way, of course. And there's a matter of the the country itself starting to to deal with that fact and the sort of the, the collective burden of, uh, of, uh, of the war that just been waged. Keith Phipps suggestion is that you check out the Burmese harp, which is available on criterion DVD. Nathan Rabin says, check out Rodney Dangerfield's no respect, which is available on CD and MP3. Nathan, Keith, as always, thank you so much. Thanks for having us. You can find Nathan and Keith online at avclub.com and hear them regularly on the AV Club podcast, Reasonable Discussions. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, David Wayne, started his comedy career now 20 or so years ago as a member of the sketch comedy group that became The State on MTV. Uh, He became a film director with the movie Wet Hot American Summer just over 10 years ago, and his new film, Wanderlust, which stars Jennifer Aniston and Paul Rudd, hits theaters on February 24th. He's managed to wed his... I guess you would say absurd, uh, silly, uh, often dependent on word mispronouncing humor to uh, more traditional comic tropes in uh, his films like Role Models. And he's made a a really remarkable career for himself and and has also been a a great friend to this program. David, uh, welcome back to the show. It's always good to return to MaximumFun.org's particular this show now called bullseye thank you <laughs> his mastery of comedy far outstrips his mastery of syntax I we should mention very eloquent today <laughs> <laughs> um i had no idea you you uh you co-wrote wanderlust with ken marino i did who has been your writing partner in many many projects and was a member of the state with you um, performs with you and writes with you on Wainy Days, your very funny web series. I also count him as a personal friend. Um, he was your college roommate. He was my college roommate. Tell me about your impressions of him. What, what, was he your, like your freshman roommate? When I was a f- my first day of my freshman year, I was randomly paired with a guy named Ross Leckie. My, my friend who I grew up with, who was Craig Wedron, who does all the music for my movies and television and whatever. Uh, and, and he and I w- wanted to room together, and we were given a third by NYU's computer system, Ross Leckie, who's this guy from uh, Long Island. And the, before even saying hello, Ross Leckie said, now look, when you're dogging a bitch, you got to do it under the sheets. <laughs> <laughs> and so <laughs> that, was, um, that was him. And then his, his like buddy from Long Island showed up to say hello, who's also like somewhere else in the dorm, and that was Ken Marino. And we got along better with Ken Marino than we did with uh, Ross, as we called him. Uh, and so, yeah, we were good friends starting from first day of freshman year. And then we lived together in the same room uh, the next year. I frankly, I would be intimidated to become friends with Ken Marino uh, because he is uh, so... 
uh, handsome, big and handsome and has yeah. so much, <laughs> such a beautiful head of hair. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that he has, he has such a beautiful head of hair that it would be intimidating even to me at 18 when I had all my hair. Right. And now I, when I has, even as, as a man with 75% of my hair, it's monumentally intimidating. I had, a, I had more of my hair back then too. Uh, I gotta say, I just don't think I thought about it that way. I mean, I mean, sure, I'm like this. This is a handsome guy. I mean, I was very excited about that. But um, no, I don't know. He was uh, he was like a Long Island guy, you know. He had a big milk crate filled with booze that he had collected, I guess, during his senior year of high school that he <laughs> hid in the under his bed. And um, and I think I, I don't think he'd ever tried drugs yet. And he was just you know here in this big city to explore new territories. I don't know. But um, we definitely laughed a lot together. And then uh, eventually he joined the group that soon, that was to become the state. And uh, I joined sometime after that. And we've, we've been writing stuff together ever since. Good. Flash is already here. You all know what to do. No. Oh, well, the volcano's exploded. We've got to act fast. Right. Batman, Robin, you find some way to block future transmissions. Wonder Woman, you stop Dr. Spiker and find out what he knows. Flash, you run to the Andes Mountains and get those plans. I'll go stop the missiles that have already been launched. Aquaman, you go talk to some fish. (laughs) Which is huge. And it's so great to be on the set of, say, Wanderlust and be able to communicate what we're talking about without saying anything and just be like, oh, yeah, that doesn't work. We, all, we, all, we both know why. Will you go fix it? You know, that's the fun part. And that's true for everyone in the state that I still continue to work with all the time. I, that's a really remarkable thing about you and your colleagues in the state. I mean, this is a huge group of people. Um, for a sketch comedy group. I mean, sketch comedy groups tend to be uh, four or five people. The state was, if I remember correctly, 11. Correct. Um, of those 11, uh, 10, I think, are still working in comedy. That's right. I think uh, the, the founder of the group, Todd, has is still in, working in creative uh, pursuits in New York, but he's not in the film and TV world. He's like a graphic designer. He does, like that, he does right? interactive design, and he teaches, and he does a lot of interesting things. But the other 10 of us pretty much have stuck, it, stuck with it and, and to varying degrees have done very well. Um, the majority of the group have each directed feature films. I mean, it's, it's pretty nuts. Um, so were you always... Uh, I mean, starting in college, the guy who was responsible for stuff. Like, did, you, <laughs> did you become? Did you who become, told you that? <laughs> did you become the director because you were the guy who was like, well, somebody's got somebody's got to make the flyers, and and I was definitely the guy like with the Mac. I was the the guy who's like, I'll let me type up the programs and I'll organize the. The lists, yeah, I was definitely that guy, even when that was not necessary. You know, I, I was the the nerd. Did uh, you enjoy doing that stuff? I loved it. Are you kidding? I, I I did way more than was necessary. I'd like let me print out all the tickets for everyone, and you know, uh, send out you know print out memos, and I just I was definitely, and a lot of it was very useful. I I definitely you know made a, a lot of phone calls and organized and dealt with money stuff and did a lot of the what you would now call producing side of the state work, which was not that much when you're a college troupe. Um, and so that, yeah. And I, I think my gravitating towards directing related to that on some level. You yeah. guys were making the pieces on the state. I mean, you guys were going out and especially there yeah. was stuff that was not shot in a, in a studio and you guys were going out and just shooting it yourselves, right? Right. There were three units on the state. There was the in-studio in front of the audience. There was the actual like shoots, the regular shoots that Mike Jan directed with the crew. And then there was the stuff I did, which was basically we had a high eight video camera and ourselves and no crew and would just go out and shoot today. That's the way most things are done. You know, that's YouTube or web series, um, on some level, although it was really just us. We didn't have anybody else. Um, 
but at the time it was pretty crazy to do that. And I loved it. There's a crazy thing about this state that I think is really interesting too, which is, and this is something I, I learned from my friend, Chris Hardwick as well. I mean, Chris hosted this show called singled out in that was ran a few years after your show on MTV. I know that very well. Chris, I found out while he was doing singled out had to have another job. Because while he was on this cultural force of a program, he was not making enough money yeah. to pay the rent on a studio apartment. MTV was notorious. Uh, there, I know Carrie Kenny at one point uh, cater was a caterer at an event where the MTV executives who employed us at the time when we were producing our show oh, were in attendance. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. So there you go. And you guys had had, you, you guys had had this very successful run on MTV that led to what looked like it was going to be a pivot to CBS and yeah. a network run. You made a special for CBS, and then that all sort of disappeared just <laughs> completely. Yes, that's right. And you went through, as a group, you went through this period of, wait a minute, are all of, like, you you went through a totally normal 23-year-old trying to break into show business period, only it somehow came after you had all already broken into show business. That is so true. For, and for me, especially, I mean, it was really... My really tough years were uh, from age uh, 25, 26, when we finished the state, all the way through 34 for me, which is when we started from the Stella pilot in the fall of 04 till now, I've been pretty busy. But those times in between, including the making of Wet Hot American Summer, was a time when I, you know, couldn't uh, make a living. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, that's that's really remarkable. I mean, it, it, to think that you, I, I mean, I, I guess this was not yet quite the age of the internet where you could just say, and, and especially given that there was 11 of you in this group that you were famous for, it wasn't just a thing where you could just say, well, we'll just put together a stage show and make some money with the people that l- love us. Right. Well, I mean, and certainly we tried very hard after the CBS thing imploded to do something else. And we tried to put together movie stuff. We we did write this book that did come out. We recorded this record that finally came out like two years ago. There was a guy on my dorm in college that had the book, yeah. which by then was out of print and cost $100 or $150 right. on the internet. It was passed around the dorm like it was. <laughs> I mean, this was like the most valuable thing in existence. It's funny. It's this a funny copy book. of State by State by the State. Yeah, it's a somebody should reprint it. It's 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 a funny book, but so we did try really hard, and nothing stuck. Nothing, nothing worked, and so uh, it was around that time that about three or four of us, not me, uh, started Viva Variety, and that's what kind of set us into the next era where the people who weren't included in that were upset and it caused a little schism for a while and bad feelings. And then, so, and that sort of put us all into our various new paths. Were you feeling bad about that? Were you one of the bad feelings? Well, I mean, everyone felt bad. Everyone was, everyone felt negatively now towards the group and towards each other. It was just, it was a, it was an unfortunate time when, this was a Comedy Central show with uh, Tom Lennon and Michael Ian Black and Carrie Kenny, which was... And Ben Grant. And Ben Grant, which was one of the strangest television yeah. programs that ever ran was, for more than one season yeah. on a television network. I thought it was great. Yeah. Um, but it was based on a state sketch. And so a lot largely for that reason and also because I think more than, than that, uh, the people, you know, from that up until that moment, the whole group's whole thing was once all for one, one for all, forever, forever, forever. And we had already bucked the odds a thousandfold, you know, from any other college comedy group. But, uh, you know, it was sort of hit us like whiplash. We're like, oh, I guess this isn't this isn't what it's going to be. And so now we all uh, we're on our own and trying to figure out what to do. Um, Of course, time has mended all those fences and we're all we're all buddies again. Did you ever think about doing something other than show business for your life during those weird years in between? No, I didn't. Um, even even before, I mean, in in those years in between when the state's, you know, multimedia efforts kind of imploded and when 
you made Wet Hot American Summer and somewhere in the I think it was during college certainly as the state was starting to happen after college more I sort of knew that this is what I do and that was really solidified at a time and I've told this story before when I was up to direct a movie sometime after Wet Hot American Summer where um Long story short, I basically prepared like crazy with this company to do uh, an interview with a, with a movie studio to be the director of a movie. And I had all my ducks in a row, and I was given a lot of encouragement that this is going to be a big thing. Worst case, I'm going to make a great impression on the studio, and maybe they'll have something else for me. And they canceled the meeting as I was walking up the studio lot, having flown myself to L.A. and rented a car to take the meeting. They're like, oh, no, we gave it to somebody else. Forget it. Just go back to New York. And I was at the time had very few other prospects and very little money. And I was just, it was the kind of thing that you would quit the business if that was an option. And I looked at myself in the rear view mirror and I just thought, well, if I don't quit now, I guess I'm never going to quit and I'm not going to quit because this is what I do. And it was a great feeling. It was like one of the happier moments in my life, getting this horrible, humiliating rejection. (laughs) What did you what did you do like when you got home? <laughs> I wish I could remember exactly what I did. I was in LA. I I probably went to whatever whoever's couch I was sleeping on and said, "Well, that was I had a <laughs> day." <laughs> When we come back, I'll talk to Wayne about rescuing role models and turning it into a smash hit. Plus, we'll talk about his new film, Wanderlust. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. By the menswear blog, Put This On, presenting the Put This On Gentlemen's Association. Members receive a handmade pocket handkerchief in the mail every 60 days. More information at PutThisOn.com. And by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. Hey, podcast listeners, review our show in iTunes. It makes a big difference, and it only takes a second. I'm waiting for you to do it. You're opening iTunes now. You're typing in Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. You're clicking on review. Now you're clicking on that fifth star. Now you're typing in why the show is so great. Now I'm thanking you. Great work. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is David Wayne. He's a comedian and writer and director. His new movie is called Wanderlust. It stars Paul Rudd and Jennifer Aniston, and it's out February 24th. And my host is Jesse Thorne. He is the host of Bullseye (laughs) uh, on uh, public radio and podcasts. I want to talk a little bit about Wet Hot American Summer, which I, I watched recently because it popped up on netflix instant Mm -hmm. um and i had i've seen the movie uh, an embarrassing number of times but i hadn't seen it in a few years and i was worried that if i watched it i would be disappointed by it yeah because i had been in you know i had watched it and loved it practically more than anything when i was in college and then had sort of thank you kept up maintenance watching it for quite (laughs) some time you know, kept kept in a nice rhythm of watching it every yeah. six months or so. Oh my god! Uh, for you know, a few years after that, um, and I thought, gosh, I wonder what I'll think of it when I haven't seen it in three or four years. Um, and uh, I I may have liked it more. Um, let's hear, let's hear a little clip from the movie. Uh, it, it is set at a summer camp uh, where. Gosh, it is sort of a combination of a parody and an homage to the summer camp film. You know, one of the things I like the most about it is that it has some of the most sincere and relatable uh, <laughs> characters and emotions with some of like the least sincere and relatable characters and emotions <laughs> sort of at the same time. Uh, I'm just nodding no, and smiling <laughs> with no, uh, with no need to reconcile those two. I think that was a big part of why the, uh, the reviews were so harshly critical at the time. Yeah. Um, this is a scene where uh, Amy Poehler and Bradley Cooper, who uh, play the uh, counselors who have a, a drama drama club, uh, or they, they're leading a drama group 
at the summer camp uh, announced that they're going to lead tryouts for uh, a camper's performance of Godspell. Hey, you guys. Everybody focus up, okay? All eyes here. I would like to announce that Ben and I are planning to produce a musical number from Godspell for the talent show tonight. <clears throat> I'm sorry. Ben is producing. I'm directing slash choreographing. I'm only speaking from personal experience, but if you can't carry a tune, don't come into the audition environment and waste our time. We're serious, okay? Okay, and bring a lot of movement clothes, a.k.a. jazz shoes, dance belts, lycras, et al. And seriously, FYI, you guys, this is not an excuse to get out of your regular activities. This is an excuse to do some good musical theater. So be prepared, be enthusiastic, and leave your attitude and baggage at the door, because we don't need it. Hey, you guys! So this movie was the first feature script that you wrote right well yeah basically yes it was but my, michael showalter and i were working on another script which was a high school movie that we called cleveland rocks uh before that and we really came up with the wet hot american summer as a way to do something quicker and easier while we were still trying to figure out how to write cleveland rocks and so it was entirely out of the whole impetus was let's do something about summer camp quick easy outside run around with our friends you know we'll come we'll think of the idea now the whole movie will be done within six months did you have an idea of what the what kind of movie it was going to be tonally when you started writing it did you think of it as that it was going to be a madcap airplane spoof fest or a loving homage or did you have a plan going in? I, I would like to, I have to say, we kind of, we knew, it's not like it turned into something else. We really knew that we said, let's do a movie about camp and make it like uh, our kind of funny. That was pretty much the log line for this beginning, you know, so about summer camp and, you know, do it our way. <laughs> Please give us $2 million. <laughs> exactly. That was underneath that. Well, I mean, and then we we actually wrote this long... Uh, and then underneath that was, we are friends with Janine Garofalo. <laughs> well, it really was that. I mean, in our we wrote this director's statement um, that we went that went out with the financing packet. And the financing packet was basically the script and this statement that basically said, you know, it's going to be this, but it's not going to be that. And it's inspired by this, but it's not that. And and then a list of actors who'd said that they would attach them, you know, that were attached. Janine Garofalo was the main one. And then we had other ones that never did the movie that, that people we knew in New York that allowed us to use their names. None of it worked anyway. We never, you know, it took years to get the financing. But um, the, the, the sort of tone that you mentioned, the, the two kinds of characters not reconciling and all that. You know, that's it is just an extension of what we did on the state and just what was in our heads. And, you know, it's something that I also love and appreciate about the movie. When I, I saw it recently in Chicago at an AV club screening, and, it was, and I, I love it, too. I, th I think there's something innocent about it in a certain way because it was our first movie and things there was a certain alchemy and a certain luck that came into just everything kind of it was a special a special experience making it and i'm glad it still holds up for a lot of people and it's it's so gratifying and so moving that people come up all the time and tell me what, how special it is to them for for a movie that has you know among other things there's a sort of a junky sequence in a flop house it, it has a talking can of vegetables yeah. and so on and so forth there's a lot of crazy stuff going down in this movie but it is very it's very sweet, the movie. There's something very sweet about it. At no point is it spiteful or contemptuous. Well, it's it's very much sourced in the real camp experiences that Mike and I had at our two separate camps. Like, and our we were underdog types, and we were nerdy kids, and it was very much about real stuff that we went through, as much as it was about wouldn't it be funny if kind of stuff we revised and honed the script over the three years that it took to get the financing. And I think that's another big reason why it works because it has a very totally thrown off quality, but it wasn't, it was really, really worked on every scene. And unlike most current comedies, there was very little improv. We shot what was on the page for the most part. 
Well, I imagine you had to. I mean, you had a... It's a little time. No money and... There were scenes that were one take, one angle, you know, that we just didn't have time. There's something of, there's something that comes up in the tone of that film that isn't necessarily so much present in the state, although there there is a little bit of the gleefulness of the state, which is that you can have a, you can have kind of actual emotional content and stakes and also have silly, ridiculous things happening. Right. Which is a very unusual thing to have coexisting in comedy. Well, and I think that, as you mentioned, that the critics didn't agree. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I think that's one of the elements that really threw them. I mean, that and that so much of the comedy was purposely not funny <laughs> on some level. <laughs> and I just think a lot of the critics that just weren't keying into it just threw their hands in the air. I'm just like, this sucks. I not only does it suck, I'm hostile to it because <laughs> I'm just like, I don't even know what to say. In fact, years later, we were putting together another project and we had a financier ready to go uh, on this movie that Ken and, Ken, Michael Showalter and I had written. And at the last minute in the 11th hour, the guy, the head of the company finally watched Wet Hot American Summer and he shut down the whole thing because he was like, you guys, I, I was all set to do this. I thought your script was awesome, but you're clearly not funny. <laughs> and and you, you guys have no idea how to make comedy because I watched Wet Hot American Summer. <laughs> and it's just, you know, okay. <laughs> but uh, I think that that's, to me, one of the great charms of the film is that, that there is genuine heart in there. But, but we never stop in its tracks to, like, say, here's a serious scene. It's always has this layer of goofball. It really is, uh, it, it, more than anything else that I know, at least for people of, who are my contemporaries, I'm, I'm 30, is a true shibboleth. That's right, right? Shibboleth? Sibboleth? Oof, I've seen shibboleth, it in print, but I certainly don't know what it means. Where it's a, th it's a thing, well, it's a, typically with language where uh, you can recognize uh, where someone, what someone's roots are, where they're uh -huh. from based on how they pronounce a certain word. But in this case, it is... I I have a hard time taking anyone seriously who doesn't get right <laughs> what American summer like I I'm bored like I feel something turn inside me and it upsets me. Well, that's very nice. to me that is the greatest compliment is the and I hear it a lot the litmus test compliment which is this is how I decide who my real friends are. <laughs> On the subject of comedy in Wet Hot American Summer that uh, may not be be n not funny on purpose, let's hear a clip of um, <laughs> Michael Showalter as uh, Alan Shemper, the elderly Catskills comedian who is brought in more or less without explanation to host the talent show uh, that is the culmination of the film, doing a little bit of his act. When I was at camp, my favorite activity was always arts and crafts. Or as we used to call it, arts and farts and crafts. <laughs> we used to make drawings. Cave drawings! Which is my way of saying we were cavemen. I went to camp so long ago that I can remember saying sticks and stones may break my bones and meaning it. I went to camp so long ago that Jesus Christ was my counselor. And my best friend hadn't fully evolved yet. His name was Ugg, and he walked on all fours. There were two epidemics when I went to camp. Head lice and the plague. The bubonic plague. You know, this past summer, uh, to commemorate the 10th anniversary of Wet Hot American Summer, we did a live show in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And he, Alan Schemper showed up. Wow, the Alan Shemper. The Alan Shemper, as played by Michael Showalter, and did a sort of improvised, uh, kind of one of the funniest things I've ever seen. <laughs> I think a lot of it's on YouTube, this just crazy Dada performance. <laughs> and um, so, you know, it, it gave me great uh, excitement about any further uh, expanding the, the, the universe that we may do. If anyone... I think has any question about whether your fondness for um, summer camp was real or not. 
I think you can always point to the fact that after you went to summer camp <laughs> and then worked as a summer camp counselor, which is traditionally, I think the process goes, you go to summer camp for a certain number of years. And once you max that out, you work as a camp counselor until right. you're... Because you can't stand the idea of not coming back. Yeah, yeah. To the maximum number of years, you actually formed a touring rock and roll band that toured summer camps. Right. For the sole purpose of finding some way to go back to camp where it wouldn't be embarrassing at age 19 to still be a counselor. <laughs> that is amazing. Yeah. What instrument did you play? The drums. What was the name of the band? The The Rockin' Nights of Summer. K-N-I-G-H-T-S. <laughs> <laughs> yep, it's true. I'm here to speak the truth. <laughs> so what was your act? Tell it, me that you wore night helmets. No, we didn't do that. But we had a cool, like a, you know, castle logo. This was the ultimate of my, like, nerdy. Let's organize our project. Um <laughs> That was on the drum, you know, on the big bass drum. We had our logo and then a banner behind us. That there my has to be a lot us. of organizing because there's you can't just call a, a summer camp band booking agent and no, have them book no. out a tour for you. I went and I bought the book of like, here's the list of every camp in New England. And I wrote them all a letter and printed it out on my Mac SE30 <laughs> and basically said, hey, my name is David Wayne. <laughs> I, you, know, you may I, have heard of me from my years as a counselor. You may, yeah, you may have heard of me from being a freshman at NYU. But uh, basically, we have this band, and and the what we do is we'll come to your camp, and we'll do a you know we'll be the entertainment at a dance or a social or a concert or whatever whatever's appropriate for your the way your camp is, whether it's a conservative or religious doesn't matter, and then we'll tailor the show to the tastes and requests of the campers and we'll get them involved in the show to the degree that you want. We know Hava Nagila. We know we, Onward Christian Soldier. Exactly. We d and we did. We played like, you know, um, hardcore punk and we played disco and we played Parents Just Don't Understand by Will Smith and, you know, it didn't, it didn't matter. We just, and then it was, like, it was like being in a wedding band. Then we would... Um, Only it was all 11-year-olds. Right. It was so weird. But so we then we went we slept at the camp. They put and us you up. were paid in bug juice. Well, <laughs> we basically and were sloppy joes. They would give us dinner. We would do the show. We'd go to bed. Usually, sometimes just sleep on the floor next to the drums. Then we'd wake up and then we'd have breakfast. This was all in the contract that I wrote up. <laughs> and then we would do a little workshop with the kids. Like we'd like teach them how to play the bass or you know like learn how to, a song goes. It was so embarrassing just thinking about it now. And then, um, but they had, I guess people had fun. And then we would drive to the next camp and we'd do it again. And we did this all summer and it was a blast. <laughs> I mean, that does sound pretty fun. I'm not going to lie to you, David Wayne. Well, it was like the only time I've ever, the closest I ever came to being on tour as a musician. And, uh, I loved it. <laughs> You're going to have to make Spinal Tap, and then you can go on weird Spinal Tap-related tours right. throughout your later middle-aged years. It's so weird. Once I mean, your show business career fizzles well, out. Well, I feel like I've done a version, you know, we, with, with Stella, we've toured all over, and uh, it's sort of like that, where you get to go on stage every night and do a show. <laughs> it's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is David Wayne, who was a member of the state and went on to direct the movies Wet Hot American Summer, The Ten, and Role Models. He also writes, directs, and acts for TV shows and web series, including Children's Hospital and Wayne Days. His new film is called Wanderlust and stars Paul Rudd and Jennifer Aniston. Let's talk a little bit about Stella. This is a clip from this show. This is uh, you, Michael Showalter, and Michael Ian Black, the trio behind Stella. And you are, um, uh, this is from the very first episode, and, and you, are, you have decided to try your hand at writing a book together. Hmm. A book. A book. How do you write a book? You start at the beginning. That's what you do. Yeah, what's the first thing you see when you open a book? The inscription. Yes. How about to Marcus? Yeah, yeah, to Marcus. Who's Marcus? Guys, who the hell is Marcus? I know. I don't know. This isn't getting us anywhere. We already have writer's block and we haven't even made it past the inscription. Wait a minute. What did Jane say? Write what you know. Yeah. What do we know? What do we know? Math. 
David, write this down. Two times two is four. Four times four is 12. 12 times 12 is 112. 12. Wait, stop. I don't think that's the kind of book we should write. And what if we wrote a book about, and I'm just spitballing here, three guys. That's great. Three guys. Where do you come up with this stuff, Mike? Okay, I'm dancing as fast as I can here. These guys, they live together in a... In a shoe. No. In a sock. No. In a shoe. No. In an apartment. Yeah. Perfect. And their names are Michael, Michael, and Craig. I love it. Perfect. Wait. Let's start typing before we forget this stuff. Uh, wait. <laughs> These shows have as distinctive a comic perspective and tone as anything that I've ever seen. And um, I Thank mean, you. there's very, they're very madcap and zany. It is the three of you uh, wearing suits and living together um, and going on little adventures where you... Um, it's hard to describe. <laughs> mispronounce a lot of words is a key component of it uh-huh. um, that I enjoy a lot, I have to say. Anyone who's listening who isn't familiar is going to be like, doesn't sound like something I'm going to check. <laughs> <laughs> I, I frankly, I have a hard time uh, at this point. Uh, there's, there's an episode where you go on a quest to clean a photo album that has jelly on it. You go to a right. dry cleaner and, and try to buy... Jelly remover. Jelly remover for photo albums. Yes. And that is a very tip, tonally typical joke for this thing. And it seems like what happened is you guys just got into this tone and then just thought, you know what? Let's just do this, but then a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more yeah. until we are just rolling in this thing and also just enjoying the hell out of it. Yeah, it was it was definitely like uh, another example of like three of us, neither, nobody saying no, <laughs> and all, all three of us saying how far can we push it. But also refining it. I mean, I think often yeah. people who push, people who are into pushing things are not also into refining them. I think it is unusual that you guys were very clearly, I mean, this is a very refined aesthetic as well. It is not all over the place. Right. It is profoundly self-indulgent, but not in the sense that it is scattershot. But I, th- I think it would be a rule for anything I've done that, that w- the, what works about it or what the things that I've done that I think work is that sensibility was evolved and refined perhaps, but never designed. You know, it was organic and it just came out of something else. It, 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 it just wasn't, let's do this and we'll be this. And, and I think that's the, the secret. Let's talk a little bit about R- Role Models, um, which was a smash hit film that you uh co-wrote and directed a baffo success uh so this this was a movie that basically you and ken marino inherited as a sort of shambolic mess with eight weeks to go before shooting or something like that right yeah it was (laughs) someone had someone had quit and paul rudd was attached to it and just he just called you he had just he just like told them like hey i'm a famous person i have a friend who knows how to direct movies Basically, yeah, it was a movie that was, um, yeah, the director had left and the script was not in a shape that anyone was happy with there. And Paul, I think, understandably was worried. And so he encouraged them to consider me as the new replacement director. And uh, they took a look at your previous films. Uh, yeah, I don't. I, the I, profoundly <laughs> alienating Wet Hot American Summer. <laughs> the, the most divisive film ever made. The, the right. film that inspired Roger Ebert to write a scathing parody song instead right. of River Review. And uh, the sketch comedy film The Ten, uh, which was a, a series even, of... Even less well-received. A yeah. series of filmic genre parodies. Right. Uh, both of which combined box office didn't break a million dollars. Well, I have to, I guess I have to hand it to the producer was the former head of universal uh, Mary parent at the time. And she uh, did like wet hot and she, she, I think she watched the 10 as well, which had just been made. And she said, I think you're good. I think you know what you're doing and encouraged the studio to hire me. And I met with the studio and I basically said, look, I really don't even know how to fix this script, but I, I think if anyone can, I could give it a, a try. 
and I asked uh, them to bring Ken on to partner with me and and Paul. And the three of us just sat down during the pre-production, which anyone who makes movies knows is the busiest, craziest, most insane time and not the best time to rewrite a script from scratch. And that's what we did. And we were building sets and finding locations and then dumping them the next day uh, because we were doing a writing process while we were casting and prepping. We cast people that ended up getting cut, you know, characters that got cut. So it was a little nutty, nutty, nutty. And then by the time we started shooting, uh, it started to go a little smoother, but we were still writing the whole time. And then the writer strike hit in the middle of it. And so we had to stop writing and shoot scenes that we knew weren't done uh, and just hope for the best. And it was, wow. It was nuts. I mean, the thing that I really enjoyed about the film was something that um, I think Judd Apatow brought to comedy films in the past five or 10 years. And he's a producer of your new movie, Wanderlust. Yeah. Which is that it had a genuine earned emotional arc. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that m- much of the praise of the film, which I think was dead on, uh, was around the fact that uh, unlike most comedy films, which start with a strong premise um, and then just sort of ride the strength of their jokes until they're over, um, this was a film that built up to a third act that was actually climactic. Right. That was a genuine climax. It wasn't just an end. That basic idea of the what of how that act three worked in the movie was there. And that is what made me feel like we could do something. And, it, and I, I agree. I think that that to me, that's it's it is in some ways you could say that the all the wanderlust and, and wet hot American summer and the role models and the state all share and Stella a thematic thing of gro- a group that is going against the grain, you know, a group that's, saying we band together as the underdogs and the nerds, you know, to, to, you know, not in exactly in the classic eighties slob versus snobs, but something like that, where it's saying we're, we, we have our own way of doing something and we don't care what everyone else says, you know? And I think that's what our reality was in our real life during doing the state. It's bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is David Wayne, who was a member of the state and went on to direct the film's Wet Hot American Summer, The Ten, and Role Models. His new film is called Wanderlust and stars Paul Rudd and Jennifer Aniston. They play a married couple who find themselves living in a hippie commune. In this scene, Rudd's character offends some of the hippies by swatting a fly at dinner. Oh, my God! Come here. What happened? George just killed a defenseless animal. What? Oh, I, just, I just swatted a fly. <gasps> Oh, here we go. Here we go. And now it's dead. What if it had young living somewhere? Young? Like maggots? Are you serious? This man has a fetish for violence. No, I don't. I... He has a fetish for violence. We're talking about a fly. Now, where does it end? When you kill a fly, you kill a bird. You kill a bird, you kill a dog. You kill a dog, you kill a soldier. I'm sorry. I didn't know I was killing soldiers. I, I support the troops. Oh, I cannot even look at you right now. I'm sorry. I'm trying to learn all the rules. There are no rules here, George. Except no swatting flies. Well, that's not a rule. It's just a way of thinking about stuff. Wanderlust is a really interesting movie. I mean, it has these. Well, maybe you can maybe you can describe for me a, a little bit this setup and the and the themes of the film. Wanderlust is about a, a couple in Manhattan uh, who are overextended in their life in every way, and in this time of recession, they essentially both lose their jobs and they lose their apartment and they have no options. And so they hit the road, uh, headed for the husband's brother's house. Uh, that's Paul Rudd's brother played by Ken Marino, uh, in Atlanta to stay, uh, to figure out what to do next. But on the way they stumble into a bed and breakfast, which turns out to be a, a free love commune and their experience over one night at the commune, and then their horribly negative experience uh, going to visit the brother uh, causes them to make the radical decision to move in uh, and live there. Jennifer Aniston is such a, I mean, she's such an amazing actress. And I've 
found that um, she has a really unique quality on screen that in some of my favorite movies that she's been in, I'm like maybe um, uh, The Good Girl is maybe my favorite movie that she's ever been in. It's interesting to me that the story is really about, at least from my perspective, it was sort of about her transformation. It was about her finding herself. I mean, it's about them finding themselves, but it's really about yeah. her. But it's it's about her, at least for me, it was about her as seen through his eyes. Right. Um I thought that was I thought that was a really interesting way of looking at their relationship. Well, you know, we just made a decision that you know it's two guys writing this film, and we were going to show this character largely from the point of view of the protagonist, Paul. You know, and it's his journey of watching what happens to his wife, at least structurally. You know, uh, as we went along, we made it, uh, the best efforts um, we could to make sure that her, what happened to her was real and made sense. And we had a lot of talks with Jennifer and, uh, everyone involved to make, you know, to, in discussing how that went, you know, and it was, uh, it was an interesting, it was an interesting challenge because it's not wet, hot American summer. And so we, in so much as that it is a more grounded mainstream movie, and we wanted to make sure that it was real and credible from beginning to end while also keeping our eyes on the prize that it is a comedy from beginning to end and that it's really you know the goal is laughs it was it's it's a it's a tough um it's a whole different game at the studio level too you know cuz you're dealing with a lot of people's input as well as the test screenings and the scores. And so, you know, it was, you're juggling a lot more balls. Have you ever, uh, uh, like been to or spent time on, uh, commune? No, <laughs> I, I went, I, I, my mom has these friends that live on this, uh, commune in, uh, West Virginia Yeah, called the rocks. And one of them, I we've heard it. I've heard of that. Oh, really? Yeah. One well, of we them, researched a lot. I mean, it's not a, it's not the sort of sort of borderline messianic commune that's going on in the movie. No. Well, right. <laughs> but the the source material though is really more what we've been talking about. It's more like the state. It's summer camp. It's the things that I have done, uh, where you have a group that's trying to uh, rise above the society and do better, you know, and that's, I've been a part of that kind of thing. You know, we don't have to follow the rules. We have to do our own thing. That was the state in a big way. And that was what we did at summer camp. And that's what, uh, in various ways, I feel like I've been part of those kinds of mentalities a lot in my life. And so in a film set is like that in some ways. Have you had to face situations where you, you get caught up in the siren song of that together? We can, be different and rise above and you get smacked in the face with a two by four all the time. <laughs> if you don't mind me mixing my metaphors just to an I was absurd, just extent. trying to, yeah, I was trying to so, keep with it. And then <laughs> such a complicated series of metaphors, but I think you know what I mean? Well, I mean, you know, the, the group dynamic has its pros and cons always. And we knew at the state, we never had a leader. We never had a veto power to anybody. So every decision had to be talked out until it was figured out 11 with people in a room. And the only reason, the main reason the state didn't stay together, I think is those 11 personalities kept getting stronger and more individual and more specific. And there was just no way we could just keep it together every day. You know, it was just insane. But, um, I think it, it only, no absolutes work forever or ever. And so we just, you know, I think that's that's a lot of what the movie's about is the the, the pros and cons of groupthink. Um, do you ever have the kind of insecurities that the protagonists in, in this movie have in terms of jealousy and uh, pettiness, or uh, either one? I mean, there are there are two great sort of insecurity tracks in the movie. One is the 
finding the right place for yourself in the world, right. insecurity. And one is the um, finding a way to be comfortable in your grown-up relationship insecurity. Yes, they're both big themes in my real life, for sure. I mean, one of the things I'm always fantasizing about is, is there another choice I could make? You know, do I have, do I have to just live in an apartment in Manhattan and have a job? And, you know, is this my life? Do I have to, or could I live on a farm in New Zealand or could I live in an igloo? You know, who says I can't, who's to say, you know, and I'm really genuinely fascinated by that. And, you know, I visit friends of mine who've made very different choices for their lives or, you know, that living on a, on a ranch in Argentina, um, even though they grew up in the suburbs, just like I did in Cleveland, Ohio. So I think about that kind of stuff all the time and still wonder, like, you know, where's, where's it going to be? Or is it going to be forever just what it is? And then as far as being comfortable, you know, with, the, you know, the, the movie talks a lot about the, the sexual freedom and, you know, free, nudity and being with your body and letting go of societal rules and you know, yes, those are the kind of things too that I've always I've always been just fascinated by that notion and how much of that is bull and how much of it is re- could be real or is real for some people or how much of it is a defense about something else. And I think our movie kind of represents all those points of view. I've I've been with my wife since I was seventeen years old, and um, have nice. just the most just tremendously fulfilling relationship with my wife, and. Um, uh, watching the movie, the themes of, you know, one of the central conflicts in the film is this couple's relationship to the open sexuality of this commune. Yeah. And it is terrifying to watch them try to reconcile and specifically to watch Paul Rudd yeah. try and reconcile the two things, the two just absolutely human normal things which are he is a dude and he (laughs) wants to sleep with every woman right as we all do yeah and just you just want to you just do the way we're designed it's you just want to it you your brain chemicals make you want to correct and then he is and then he has to he re knows that, <laughs> that that would just be so bad like it would be such a terrible right. situation it's there's this you know our our brains and hearts are very weird and we're just designed and hardwired to want to have sex and also to not <laughs> but it's weird because it's like a, it's like a physical i mean it's such a simple physical thing yeah to run in parallel with this much more broader existential theme of you know do i just have a regular job in the city and work there right or do i live on a weird farm with a bunch of hippies and how much can i put my money where my mouth is if my wife seems to embrace this now in a way that I was hoping she would, but more than I expected. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the, all of the questions you can, you know, watch Wanderlust hopefully and laugh the, all the way through and then have a lot of serious discussions uh, over a drink later. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, David, I, I sure appreciate you taking the time uh, to uh, talk with it's me. It's a again. pleasure. It's, it's been too long. Joy. I love come back anytime. David Wayne is the director of Wanderlust. It stars Paul Rudd and Jennifer Aniston. It's in theaters this week. You can catch his other great works, Wayney Days on DVD Now and Children's Hospital on Adult Swim. Is there a song that makes you happy every time you hear it? That's our subject when we come back. On Bullseye from PRI, Public Radio International. Hi, I'm Justin McElroy. I'm Travis McElroy. I'm Griffin McElroy. We're three brothers. It's not a coincidence. We have a show. It's called My Brother, My Brother Me. It's an advice show for the modern era. Uh, sometimes we also take questions from the Yahoo Answer Service. Hey, guys, how many push-ups does it take to look like a werewolf? <laughs> <laughs> That's a fine question, Griffin. We'll answer that one and so much more, including questions from readers about love and navigating the waters of society. Subscribe on iTunes or get it online at MaximumFun.org. We're brothers. We're experts. And we're sorry. 
You can follow Bullseye on Facebook. Just go to Facebook.com slash Bullseye with Jesse Thorne and click like. Lucky for you, Bullseye correspondent Jordan Morris is back to put everything in its place, its ranked place. It's Jordan Ranks America. At number five this month, it's Blu-ray Discs. It's hard to say if they look better than standard DVDs, but those tiny cases sure look neat on the shelf. Holding firm at number four, it's The Late Career of Liam Neeson. I'm sure he's not turning out Oscar-worthy performances, but he's making up for it by punching a lot of dudes in the throat and looking for someone who's missing. At number three, it's Your Friends from High School. They don't get along great with your friends from work, but they sure can tell the story about the time you puked at the community pool. Debuting strong at number two, it's MSNBC, a 24-hour news network that's both sensational and boring? Sign me up! Snatching the top spot this month, it's Brunch. Should I get an omelet or a club sandwich? With Brunch, the toughest questions are always the most delicious. From the bottom to the top, I'm Jordan Morris with Jordan Ranks America. Jordan Morris is a comedy writer and performer in Los Angeles. He co-hosts the show Jordan Jesse Go with me every week. You can find it free at MaximumFun.org and you can subscribe to it free in iTunes. You can also follow Jordan on Twitter at Jordan underscore Morris. Every week we close this show with a pick from yours truly. It's the outshot. Is it too much to devote an entire segment to one song? What if it's a song that makes you happy every time you hear it? Like every single time. If it's the nighttime and I'm driving and I'm feeling kind of blue... There's one song I want to hear to cheer me up. If it's a beautiful day and my windows are down and my stereo is turned up and I want to celebrate how great things are, it's the same song. DJ Quick, Pitching on a Party. Because that is my jam. It's a simple song. It's about how DJ Quick thinks that we should all have a party. There are some challenges to the party. There are some dudes that might want to steal his liquor. They might also want to start a fight. There's the fact that if he wants to get some, he's going to have to convince a girl to do it with him. There's the logistics of the potluck. That's a big challenge. There's the possibility the police might come and break things up. Basically, though, this party is going to be a great time because we're all in this together. of pitching on a party is one of the best qualities of gangster rap. One that I don't think gets talked about enough. It's that feeling that when things are really messed up outside, a little thing like some good-ass chicken and potato salad is really special. Where your pants go? And I can get with that pretty much whenever. In fact, turn it up right now. 
cigarette burns in my plush. Empty beer bottles in the brush. My back stiffin' like a lush. Boy, what else could go wrong? Somebody to kick the stitcher cord out. Move. Y'all gotta be some of the clumsiest motherfuckers. To the sounds. Now some. Y'all the most up. Get out. Get on. Speed up. Get up. Take your weed on. Yeah, nigga. The drunk again said it. Your pockets, that's where I'm headed. Kick up. That's it for Bullseye this week. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer, Julia Smith. Nick White, our editor. Our intern is Joe Molinelli. Our theme music is Huddle Formation by the Go Team. Thanks to the Go Team and their label, Memphis Industries, for letting us use that. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org, on Twitter, at Bullseye, or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. And remember... All great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Production of Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is supported in part by the menswear blog, Put This On, presenting the Put This On Gentlemen's Association. Members receive a handmade pocket handkerchief in the mail every 60 days. More information at putthison.com. And by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. Support for this program comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.